there, folks, and welcome to episode 3177 of the Survival Podcast. Today's entire show, including the housekeeping, will be uh, a live stream on all of the video platforms, the most popular one of which, of course, is still YouTube. Uh, despite my efforts to change that, I've just accepted that is how it is for now until the gods at YouTube destroy me, smite me, and throw me away. Then you'll have to come somewhere else, and I guess that's what it will take before anybody really follows me to alternative video platforms. That said, if you're on YouTube right now, as requested by Eka Mouse, do not anger the Eka Mouse. Give me a thumbs up, man. Help me with the algorithms and the shadow banning and all that other stuff. Uh, make it happen. Don't anger the Eka Mouse. You will be in deep trouble if you do. If you don't know what that means, it's because you're not on the live stream and you're not familiar with the Eka Mouse. Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? Well, this is kind of my first full-on normal podcast since I got back. I had a, a podcast with John Willis and Nicole on Tuesday that I generally don't run as a podcast. I let Nicole have that exclusively, but I was beat. I was tired. There wasn't going to be one unless I used the audio from that. And then yesterday I had an interesting interview. For those who didn't tune in, maybe you don't like the permaculture stuff, it was with a uh, beyond permaculture, so I guess he would call himself, and he was just basically describing another form of permaculture, in my opinion, who was clearly very, very, very much a leftist and uh, what have you. But we had a good discussion. I actually got a lot of feedback from people that were uh, very appreciative that I let him say his piece. We might have had a debate here and there, but basically we had a discussion. I tried to do that. There are some things that I completely disagreed with there. I may speak to in the future, but I, I'm not going to let a guy come on and say his piece and then kind of thrash him on the next day. I don't think that's very cool. But what can I do today? And I thought, you know, one of the most popular types of shows are where we blend current events and just generalized thinking and stuff like that. And uh, when it's just me kind of riffing on a bunch of different stuff for a variety of shows. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the uh, Nord Stream pipeline being blown up. And we're going to come at it from, like, I think I know who did it. You probably think you know who did it, but I'm going to come at it from just like if we were police detectives investigating a crime, who would be the first suspect? We're going to come at it like that. And who would we probably say likely isn't the one who did it, right? Who would we like put on the list of probably not? And who would we put at the top of the list of probably? And how would we get there using the concept of motive and benefit? Because that's what any detective would do. Uh, we're going a little bit about the potential for World War III that spins right off of that. On, on some levels, you feel like we're kind of begging for it. We're kind of poking the hornet's nest, like, like, come on, come out and sting us, like we want it to happen. Are we really? What are the lessons from the past here? What do we learn from the Cold War? Let's go back to who benefits and how they benefit and how that even if it's the plan, you can still screw it up and hopefully we won't. And, I had an interesting thing happen after yesterday's episode. I don't get a lot of blog comments anymore. Most of everything's on social media now and all. Somebody came on the blog and pointed out the story of Cuba going organic after yesterday's episode. And uh, what happened in Cuba when they decided, hey, they had to make do with what they had to feed the people of the island because Soviet Union fell apart and they just kind of like said, oh, you're on your own. But there's the part of the story that no one ever talks about. With what happened to Cuba when the outside inputs came back. So we're going to talk about that in the format of 
why socialism always fails, or maybe how socialism always fails. Then we're going to talk about evaluating people in your life with words. This was something that came up in my discussion with Nicole and John. I want to explore that a little bit deeper, so all credit to Nicole Sauce when we do that. John Willis also said something about, you know, the people you surround yourself with, you become more like them, etc. And I've talked about that for years. It's actually one of my laws of life. But he used a term. We all need a personal board of directors around us. And I want to expand that one a little bit, so we'll credit John Willis for that. The Lightning Network just hit 5,000 Bitcoin of liquidity. I'll talk a little bit about why that matters. It'll be a very brief segment, but with not being here for a normal Tuesday, there was no Bitcoin breakout. So I think that that's a big milestone we should at least mention. It matters. And I'm going to talk about the real estate market crash that's occurring and how that relates to like going into the event horizon of a black hole. Uh, I said this was coming. I said this was coming right in the middle of the scamdemic. I'm talking 2020, early summer. I said, this is how it's going to play out. Now it's happening. And the concept of the value of everything coming down, but the cost of everything staying up is more evident in real estate than any place else because interest rates and manipulation. Um, and then lastly, I'm calling this bullet point, welcome to Japan in 1992. Economically and demographically today, we call it America. Yeah. So I think we're going to go all over the place today and we'll have some fun talking about the crazy ass world that's out there. So real quick, before I give you our sponsors today, let me remind you to go all caps with questions just like this one here or talking points. I will star them, which I've already done with the one that I'm putting up on the screen. We'll come back at the end and try to answer some of them, depending on how long things go. If you don't put your stuff in all caps, I won't know that it's for me. And when I'm riffing through here, um, I will uh, I will probably miss it. So make sure that you're using all caps. And I will be, for those of you guys that are online, as I can, uh, bringing up people's comments so people that watch the video later can see them come off the screen close to as they would have happened had they been around when we did the live stream and in the live chat. So anyway, um, I just want to remind you, I will never ask you for any personal information whatsoever. If you see it in the comments below, it has my logo or something or likeness. Probably ain't me. And those of you guys that are active on Instagram, I will never DM you or any of that shit. Please don't fall for any scams. So sponsor of the day today is Paul Wheaton. And I wanted to talk to you guys a little bit about one of his products that I was a bit skeptical about whether I'd want it for myself or not. And it's the one I've been talking about the last couple of times I've been in the air with him. And that is the rocket oven product. Now here's the thing about the rocket mass heater thing. I think it's wonderful technology, but I'm probably not going to retrofit one into my house. And I think that's why a lot of you guys are like, love the rocket mass heater stuff, but don't want to invest in it. A rocket oven can live outside your house. A rocket oven can be portable. It can be built for very little money. You do not have to weld or have any previous experience. And I saw one of Paul's videos where one of these rocket ovens was able to bake like nine pizzas in 30 minutes from a cold start. And it used like four and a half or five pounds of wood. That's pretty damn impressive. And it's a great way to begin to understand rocket heating technology. And it's just kind of cool. And you can get Paul Wheaton's entire instructional over two hours of exactly how to build one of these for yourself for 10 bucks. 
There's a link in the show notes if you're listening to the audio. There's a link in the video notes below to get over to the audio for all the links and all the yummy stuff that we put on there, all the extra collateral that you can always want from an episode. It's all down there. Be about up about one hour after the live version of this video ends. And there's even a link in the video notes below of how to get this really cool badass rocket oven technology for yourself. Again, you get it all for a whopping 10 U.S. space credits available immediately to watch online. There's also other options if you want to download it, own it, or have a DVD if you're still in that world sent right to your house. And I'll just say real quick, I won't bring it up on the screen, but he also has a really awesome PDC and appropriate technology course. I also have links for that in the episode today as well. That is just amazing. It's basically getting a full PDC plus another course, an appropriate technology course, 177 hours video for about $65. And if you've always wanted to do a PDC and just didn't have the time and or the money, this would be the next best thing. And I'm talking top-notch instructors. I've managed to keep Paul open to keeping that deal open and available to you if you don't want or want to add it to the rocket oven thing. And that wraps up our sponsor. So let's start with Nordstream. All right, so what I want to point out before we even go into this is you, you if you're going to look at a suspect in a crime, and this is obviously a crime, there's a couple things you look at. One is motive, and we're going to spend the most time on that, but the other is ability or opportunity. Okay, so if you, for instance, were looking for who stole cookies out of the cookie jar that was on top of the refrigerator, and one of your kids was tall and old enough to climb, etc., and inside the house, and your other kid was with you while you were gone from the house and was a little bitty baby who didn't have the dexterity to know where the cookie was or get to the cookie, you would immediately rule out the baby. You would, you'd say, somebody with the opportunity, i.e., we weren't looking, and capability, i.e., tall enough and you know able to physically get up on top and get the cookie jar down, that's a suspect. So this Nordstrom, pri- Nordstrom Pipeline, is around 230 feet deep in the Baltic Sea off the northern coast of Denmark where it was blown up. So you got to get explosives all the way down there. You can't just throw a depth charge down there. You've got to actually get it kind of attached to be able to do this damage. Freezing cold water, very rough seas. This is not an unsophisticated attack. So when people say something like Greenpeace did it, because that's one of the little theories that have been floated, I don't think so. First of all, it's not good to damage a pipeline at the bottom of the ocean if you're Greenpeace. You want to, like, disrupt things. You don't want to actually cause environmental problems. The other thing is, I'm just going to say they're the kid that was with you at the grocery store that's still in a car seat, and you can't blame them for the cookie jar because they just don't have the ability to do this. This is a sophisticated operation uh, with some significant technology in the form of something like mini submarines or some other very sophisticated drone-like technology necessary to get this done. So now let's look at who has motive. Who has motive to do this? Who? So Putin did it. Why? Why would Vladimir Putin do this? What would Vladimir Putin gain from doing this. Well, he doesn't want them to have his gas. He's goose. He owns the, he has the other end of the pipeline. 
All he has to do is not put gas in the pipeline. Pipeline's still there. He now has a leverage point to say, you want the gas, I'll turn it back on. So this actually took away the leverage point of, I can turn the gas on and off. Gas is permanently off. Uh, Vladimir Putin's gas is not worth anywhere near as much to him in Russia as it is going through that pipeline into Europe for sale. So Vladimir Putin, don't even say he's not a suspect as a detective. Just say probability of a suspect based on motive, very low. Based on capability and opportunity, pretty high. But motive is non-existent. There's a non-existent motive. Um, so the next thing you'd say is, well, who does have a motive? Okay, some European power. Okay, so the European powers that are going to freeze to death this winter and have an energy crisis on their hands, they might want that thing open to negotiation so that maybe they could gain access to the energy that's freely available and cheap if that pipe stays there. Now, they have a motive against Putin, but wouldn't it be better to have the leverage point of Well, if you do this, then we will buy from you again and not freeze to death. So they don't seem to have a great deal of motivation or motive to do this. Though they would still have the capability probably to do it. Any major European power probably maybe could pull this off. Hmm. So we've kind of put Putin and Europe on the improbable but capable suspects list, we've taken the environmental wackos and said not it, it wouldn't be that they might not do something like this, but it really doesn't fit their modus operandi, doesn't really fulfill their goals, and don't have capability to do this. Who's left? China? I don't think so, right? Some African power or something, some South America, Mexico, right? Like, who's actually left as a player in this game? That benefits. Wouldn't that be the United States of America? Wouldn't you think that maybe the U.S. is sitting back? We have this agenda. We've already interfered with the peace process. The eventuality of this is Russia takes these eastern provinces one way or another. That's like the best. I, I said a day after this happened. That's your best case scenario now. So the U.S. doesn't want this to happen. Ukraine goes right to the edge of a peace negotiation when this shit starts with Putin and Russia. U.S. gets in the way and says, no, here's a bunch of money and a bunch of shit. You keep fighting as long as we tell you to. And at the same time, we know we're creating a financial and energy crisis in Europe. And our biggest leverage point is sanctions on Russia. Might we not just get to the point where we think, you know, about the time people have icicles hanging off their freaking nose and all of Europe is on the edge of economic collapse, those European guys have a, have a nasty habit of seeking peace when it gets really uncomfortable. Maybe, maybe they'll kind of stray from what we tell them to do, our hegemony, and maybe they might say, hey, you know what, we're not all in on this anymore. We'd like not to die, please. So who benefits, who benefits, who benefits by that pipeline not existing right now? 
Who benefits? And it's a very interesting thing that Aaron Sweet is saying. The U.S. hasn't denied it. That's actually one of the more telling things that governments do. Just because the government denies doing a thing doesn't mean they didn't do it. But when they're being accused of a thing and don't deny it, it, it kind of points the finger right at them, right? And I, I find this interesting, too. Listen to this. Zip 488. Yeah, that's the way you talk politics. What the hell is political about this? What the hell is political about evaluating a situation and saying who's responsible for it? You know what? I'm tired of people like this. I really am. I'm bored. I'm bored with people like this. Here. I'm done. Goodbye. It amazes me that people cry about the content you put out at all. You don't like my shit? Shut your your face, slit, and go elsewhere. I I really... I, I will totally tolerate people... uh, disagreeing with me, but complaining about the material that I put out when I've been putting out the same mix of material for 14 years. I don't know why you're here. Go away. If you won't go away, I'll send you away. But anyway, I think it's important. I don't think this is political. I don't think this is about who you vote for. Because someone said, uh, spoiler alert, I don't remember who it was. I put it up on the screen. Spoiler alert, you, you think Biden did it. I do not think Biden did it. I don't think Biden puts his own underwear on anymore. Okay? I think the United States government did it. And, yes, I'm a believer there's a thing called the deep state, and it's actually a bigger reason to not participate in politics. Because you can change the teeth, but you can't change the nature of the shark when the next row comes in. And I think we absolutely do benefit from this, and Europe suffers for it, and Russia suffers for it. And Ukraine in the end suffers for it because, in the words, words of Lao Tzu, no country ever benefit, I'm sorry, Sun Tzu, no country has ever benefited from a po- protracted long war. Not either side, not the side that wins or the side that loses. The longer a war goes, the more both sides suffer. And we're also in a point where you're seeing how much these people that claim the most important thing in the world is my democracy, my democracy. Don't give two flying shits about my democracy. The proposal on the table now is that the people of uh, this, these eastern provinces in, in Ukraine, which by the way, Ukraine was never a country until it was made so. Ukraine, in Ukraine, you know what the word Ukraine means? Borderland. Most of Ukraine spent more time as being like part of Poland than it has been being a nation called Ukraine. By the way, my family's Ukrainian. I have to know a few things about this, okay? Um, so I think we need to pay attention to this because, and this is where I want to transition into the next thing, because I don't, I don't think there's any doubt the United States should be the prime suspect in this thing. That it, the prime suspect for who did it is the United States of America. Now, notice something I didn't say. The United States absolutely is the one that did it. I believe it, but I'm not going to say it as though it's a fact because I don't know. All I'm saying, all I'm saying, and I'm about to ban Adam Harner unless you tell me real quick that you're just being cheeky and playing a joke here. 
So, Adam, you have like 30 seconds to get a comment in there that says you're being sarcastic and I don't understand it or you're fucking gone to. All right. So all I'm saying is the United States, if you were a detective investigating a crime, would be the primary suspect. Now, the reason I'm even bringing this up is because we are literally flirting with thermal, global thermal nuclear war with this shit. When you're, when you are escalating a conflict between two nations that you really shouldn't be taking a side in their war and the side you're, 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 you're supporting doesn't have nuclear capability and the side that you're agitating does and you've interfered with a police, with, with a peace process that was on the verge of success, right? That was on the verge of success. And you're the, 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 the most powerful nuclear power in the world and you're agitating the second most powerful nuclear power in the world. You're at least creating the potential for a nuclear war. Whether it's a limited or large exchange, doesn't matter. You're creating that possibility. And so here would be my question for all these people like Adam here that says I'm being paid by Russia. And Adam, I'm giving you 30 more seconds to come back and telling me this is some kind of a joke, right? To, to ask these people a simple question. What the hell do we get for risking nuclear war as the American people? What do I get out of this as an American? What does a poor little lady living across the street from me get as an American in exchange for risking nuclear war over a tiny piece of a country that is absolutely turning into a dictatorship in its own right? You know, you got a country where this guy that we make out to be some kind of Iron Man-like hero has literally banned the opposition party and thrown his political opponents in jail. We've chosen that side. This is like Iran-Iraq all over again, except Iran has, you know, like a major nuclear arsenal when we got involved in that conflict in the, in the early 1980s. Picking a side in that war was stupid. This is more stupid. So Adam, Adam says, wait, what? <laughs> I don't know, dude. You asked me if I was being paid to say this. I, I re kind of recognize your name, so I don't think you're being serious. Oh, well, I haven't denied it. Goodbye. I haven't denied it. I, I, I'm done with it, giving you the benefit of the doubt, dude. Goodbye. Right. Anybody that's dumb enough to think somebody at my level is paid by Russia for anything is an idiot is an absolute idiot. And not it doesn't even have anything to do with my integrity. I'm not worth it. I'm not important enough. These I've been called I've been called a CIA shill, I've been called a shill for the oil companies, I've been called a shill for the Democrats, I've been called a shill for the Republicans. This is the dumbest thing. I am not important enough. I've never claimed that I'm important enough. I'm sitting here with 173 people in a live stream. I'm not exactly worth investing in by any of these entities. These people are idiots. I will say, though, that I think that it is absolutely the case that we are closer to World War III at any time in the history of the nuclear arsenals except maybe the middle of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And that's dumb. It's dumb. And the, the sad thing is people claim this is political, 
I don't think when the Republicans take over in November, that's going to change. Assuming we don't launch the Luft balloons between now and 2024, if the Republicans take everything, I don't think this type of behavior is going to change. The only thing that gives me hope that we won't all be putting our head between our legs and kissing our asses goodbye, right, um, is history. So I look at this and I see military industrial complex. See, if you're drinking a joke, put a little smiley face with it, right? Uh, <laughs> I'll leave that for those on the day. I look at history and I think the military industrial complex is hurting right now, believe it or not. Um, the war in Ukraine is is fortune for them because we keep hearing about all these billions of dollars of aid that are going to Ukraine. The vast majority of it is in the form of materials and weapons and that are being, you know, that are defensive and offensive materials produced by the military industrial complex. You know, with with the the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq ending, you know, this like Use of the materials is in decline, so the desire to buy new materials is in decline. So we need a new place to to make a case that the U.S. needs to spend billions to replace the things that they gave away. All these weapons that are going to Ukraine, God knows where they're ending up. Uh, I have a theory I can't prove, but I believe much of it will end up in the hands of the Chinese, that they will reverse engineer and use to their own gains. And when it happens, you remember that you heard it here when it finally comes out that it did. I have no proof. I also had no proof when I said that I thought some of the things that were going on with COVID would uh, lower fertility rates. But we know that is true now. That's just an instinctual thing. It's just examining what's on the ground. While this was all going on and leading up to where we're at now, where Russia has basically said this little piece of Ukraine is now under Russian protection and Russian territory. That happened on October 4th. I told Nicole Sauce on October 2nd, watch October 4th. Putin will pull back into the areas that he actually wants and declare them under Russian protection. And people say, well, how did you know that? Because I looked at what was going on and what was on the ground. and look at what everybody was saying about, you know, he can't take Kiev. Never tried. The fact that it's not laying in rubble, whether you hate him or like him, I don't care. It shows restraint from a military standpoint. It was pretty obvious. There's certain things that you can just look at and see. And I'm hoping I'm right about this with this World War III shit. So the most money that was ever made by the military industrial complex was made during the Cold War. What you want to do if you're these people is you want to take us to the point of total fear in society so that you can sell the need for all your shit. So you can sell more of it and you get more of the budget that comes from the United States government and the taxpayers. And at the same time, see, the government loves this because if you're in fear, you obey and you sacrifice liberty for safety. And then you get people that are stupid shouting at anybody that points out how screwed up all of it is, saying you're a tool of Putin. Putin pays you. Nonsense like that, right? I mean, come on. Normal form says Jack seems to bat about 90%, maybe more. I'd say it's about right. 85, 90%. Um, especially if you hold me to being exactly right. I'm probably up in the upper 90s if it's sort of right. And I'm wrong 5% of the time, 100%. Um, 
I would really hate to be wrong here that we will avoid this going nuclear. And, and I think that the goal is to raise the fear factor across the world for the next wave of totalitarianism and the next wave of the growth of the military industrial complex. Both of the outcomes are bad, but there's no doubt seeing giant mushroom clouds would be worse. Let's move on from there because there's only so much we can do about it. Let's talk about leftism a little bit, friends and neighbors, and socialism. And again, somebody will get up here and whine and cry that I'm talking about politics. Now, I'm talking about a system of economics called socialism and why it always fails. And I want to talk about why I think it always fails. And I think it's because it's fundamentally flawed as a system of, of, of economics. I think, and people get mad at me, I think socialism is a perfectly fine thing used as an adjective in a voluntary association for limited things within a group of people acting collectively. And it is socialism, right? If everybody chooses to share an asset uh, within that group and they don't force anybody else into it, it's voluntary socialism and that's fine. I think socialism as a system of governance is doomed to failure because it removes economic incentive to action. And economic incentive to action is how society moves forward and has actual progress with all this. All the socialists like to say that they're all about progress. What they mean is progress of their agenda, not actually progress of their society. Uh, though a lot of our young people who have been through the indoctrination of uh, our university system think that's what it is. It certainly isn't. And see, here's another person. This is where people get into trouble, dude. Uh, Tio Kalito says social is never voluntary. Horseshit. Horseshit. Socialism is no government system is voluntary ever. So socialism is a form of governance is never voluntary. But say something is never anything is you, and his socialism here chases socialism is the initiation of aggression of private property owners. No. Socialism is collectivist action for collectivist good, and as long as all the people in said collective agree to it, and as long as the property that they're using belongs to them, they have every right to do it. You'd call it a co-op or something, but as an adjective, it's still socialism. This is a problem. We take a word and we, we hate it so much, we can't see it for what it is. Both sides do it. Anyway, let's get on to how socialism fails as a system of government. So, Leftists, especially eco-leftists, love the story of Cuba. When the Soviet Union fell apart, they got cut off and they couldn't get, you know, they couldn't get fertilizer and they couldn't get outside genetically modified seed and stuff like that. You know, they couldn't get all this stuff. Basically, Russia, after the Soviet Union fell apart, had its own problems, said, Castro, dude. Love you and your cigars that you don't actually smoke, but you're on your own. And the rest of the world said, sucks to be you. And so the people of Cuba and the government of Cuba decided, shit, well, starving sucks. So they had something called incentive to figure out how to make what they had work. And they built a pretty amazing economic system uh, and a, 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 a agricultural system to actually feed the island. And the government did things like said, here's this land. It's not being used right now. Anybody that wants to, they basically created sort of like 
a hybrid, kind of a fascist thing where the state was incentivizing private enterprise, right? They went, see, communism and fascism play together really well. They just get mad at each other because they both want control. They're just two mafia bosses on the same side of the political spectrum with a different, different slogan is all they really are, right? And so they had this thing and, and leftist environmentalists loved it because it's such a great story. Everybody was going to starve. It seemed like it was impossible to do. Poor soils, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden, what happened? They fed themselves. Now, it wasn't without pain, but overall, it was successful. And they built an incredibly sustainable and, dare I say, regenerative agricultural system. And there were all these people that, for the first time in their lives, were out doing the thing, and they were actually earning an income and being rewarded for doing the work that was producing a product that people actually needed. But you know what everybody leaves out? They're not doing it anymore. It fell apart. As soon as the socioeconomic system in Cuba went back to the way it was, we think, well, since we have sanctions on Cuba, they don't get it. No, there's a lot of people in the rest of the world totally willing to do business with Cuba. Do you want to buy Cuban cigars? Go to Mexico. That's as far as you gotta go, right? And you can buy all the Cuban cigars you want in Mexico. Now, be careful if you do that, because a lot of shit in Mexico that's sold as Cuban cigars aren't. You gotta know what you're doing. But yeah, there's a lot of the rest of the world will do business with Cuba. And when they got enough of the faucet turned back on, they started doing conventional agriculture and importing food again. And the entire amazing system that they built went away. Now, it wasn't just because the, the faucet turned back on. It was because there's a certain amount of guaranteed living. Think of it kind of like similar to like a Native American reservation. A certain amount of stipend and guaranteed housing. All the stuff that the left claims to want. And so if you go back and listen, back in like 2014, on my podcast, I interviewed Marjorie Wallcraft who actually went to Cuba instead of just hearing the amazing story. And at that time, the stuff was just beginning to turn back on. And she talks about how she talked to people who were farming that stopped farming. I said, well, why would I now? The reason socialism fails is the more it grows, the less incentive to action there is within a society. Because you disincentivize productivity. You, you actually punish productivity in a socialist state, which is any state that has a tax-based system that taxes productivity as socialist. So I'm including the United States. But the more you turn up the dial, the more disincentivization you get. There are tremendous numbers of people in the United States right now that live on a social welfare system that will not work. They will not work because it's uncomfortable to work, because there's no incentive to work. And dare I say, some of them would work if they didn't risk losing what they had. There are people that I know personally that I went to high school with, and I'm 50-something years old, right, so I'm not that old, that I'll talk to and they'll say stupid shit like I'm retired now. And I'm what in the and I'm thinking that this person was not exactly someone that excelled at anything. So what could you have possibly done to have enough of a windfall that you're 50, 51, 52, 49 years old 
and you're retired. Do you know what they mean? They manage to get on disability. The area I'm from in central Pennsylvania, it is actually a goal. It is a goal in the life of people to attain being on disability. And the area is so depressed with a little help from Section 8 housing that you can live on a couple thousand dollars a month for the rest of your life. And until this like pain of inflation on the food supply happened, but you still get food stamps, stuff like that, you live actually pretty good as long as you don't work. And you see it wherever it happens. I mentioned Native American reservations. The Native American population of our country, specifically certain tribes and certain reservations, should be some of the wealthiest people on the planet, and they're the poorest demographic that there is due to disincentivation. And it's also due to the United States government say this is yours, but you can only use it the way that we say. There's a lot of things that Native Americans are incapable of doing with the land on their reservation under the treaty with us that said this is your, this, you know, they call it their nation, right? The Cherokee Nation or the Chippewa Nation or something like that. And I'm not putting down Native Americans anymore than I'm putting down Cubans. I'm saying when you have a system of governance that disincentivizes production, right, right, that disincentivizes production, then you get less production. And when you get less production, you get less progress. And production doesn't necessarily mean production of things for the sake of things. I'm all about let's, let's, let's kind of disassociate ourselves with the economy of stuff for the sake of stuff. But I'm talking about things that actually improve human life, not just economic production like building houses, but art and culture. It's hard to be producing a lot of art and culture when you're getting drunk on Aquanet because you can't get your booze on Sunday, which is a real thing that actually happens in Native American reservations where the disincentivation structure has been combined with a lot of abuse. So anyway, let's move on from there because we ain't going to solve that problem today. I want to talk about what we can do in our lives. And two things that came out of my discussion with Nicole and John on Tuesday that I thought were really fascinating. And so Nicole talked about this method of evaluating people in your life as to whether you keep them or push them away or kind of put them in like, you're in a group that I'll still hang out with, but not all the time. And she said that what she learned was that you, you give people a numeric score. You give them a one, a zero, or you give them like a negative or it was something like that, right? Or like a one or a negative one or a zero. And so let's use that because I don't remember exactly what she said. But if you gave them a one, that means they were a net positive in your life in some way. They made you more energetic, more happy. They gave you good advice. They did something. They did something good. And let's say a zero was just like they were a net neutral. When you got done talking to them, you didn't feel drained, but you didn't feel lifted up in any way. Their advice was pretty much no shit. Like it, it didn't, they never gave you advice that conflicted with what you believed. Uh, it was just kind of like, Blah, blah, right? And it was just so they were just a net zero, right? Or that those people were a negative one. In other words, you get off the phone with them or you're done with it, you're just drained, you don't want to do anything for the rest of the day. Their advice sucks. There's nothing about them that you want to be more like, and they go in another group. And in those three groups, you then say, the ones... These are people I'm going to spend time with. These are people I'm going to work with. These are people I'm going to partner with. These are people I want in my active network, right? 
the zeros, I don't have to get rid of you, but I ain't making no effort to be part of you. And the negative ones, I'm sorry, you're out. And then you make, you make some allowance for things like, my brother-in-law's a zero, but it's Thanksgiving. I'm going to shut my mouth and let him run his mouth and I'm going to eat turkey for mom. Right? Like you, you, you have that part that you allow to coalesce. And when I was listening to this, I actually made it more complicated and originally thought there's no benefit to my making it more complicated, that her system was simple and elegant. But what I came up with for those that heard that one was maybe we should come up with a word for that person. And I think the words for the positive people are more important. So if I let's go back to the two people we're having a discussion with. John Willis, I would say energy. I told John at Self Reliance Festival this time, part of my problem is I'm too comfortable. People think I work my ass off, and I do, but there's a lot th- more things I could be doing to grow harder and faster and stronger and more wealthy, but I'm very comfortable where I am. And John's the guy that always pushes me to do, so, like, be selective, but a little bit more, because the word I think of with John is energy. That's so I think John is my energy guy. If I'm a little bit tired, I go listen to John or I talk to John. Nicole Sauce, if I'm going to give her a word, because both of these guys are, you know, a positive. They get a plus sign or a one, right? They're to the positive side. I want them in my, my group of people that I share time with is inquisitive. One of the best things about doing something with Nicole when we're doing interviews or something like that, whether you're speaking or somebody else is speaking, Nicole will say, But why? And she'll say it. She almost sounds, and I don't mean this any way negative at all. She almost sounds like a four-year-old because that's genius. That's magical. But why? Well, we believe this, 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 and this. But why? Because that that's actually much more useful in solidifying an idea or a concept than being challenged with, no, you're wrong. But why is not a shut-down question. It's an open-up question if you're not talking out of your ass. If you're talking out of your ass, but why leads to a whole bunch of intelligent-sounding words with no substance, or you, you verbally or emotionally attack that person, or you just ignore them and go past it. But why makes us find the reason for what we're doing? And so those would be the words that I would use. But I was like, you know what, with Nicole brought with the, let's just call it positive, negative, or zero. I think that's what she actually said. Now I'm thinking about it. it. It didn't require that. It didn't require that. But this led to the next stage in the discussion. And I don't even know if John Willis realized he said it when he said it. But he was talking about this same thing about the group. And he said, we all need around us kind of our own board of directors. Now, you'll notice something about me in discussions. It is very seldom, if you're watching a video, that somebody says something and I stop and write it down. Interviews, sometimes you'll see like one word. That's just because a question came to mind, and I don't want to end the discussion, miss the opportunity to ask the question. When I stop and I make a note, just because, and I want it for later, it's, it's one in ten podcasts that somebody hits something that specific that I'm like, this must be expanded upon because the, what I, the word I wrote down or the phrase I wrote down 
wasn't board of directors. It was chairman of the board. That's what I wrote down when John wrote that. Chairman of the board. And what I meant by that is that if I'm going to have a board of directors around me that pertain to my life, I will take your your theories, your concepts, your ideas under advisement. Right? I'll be Frank Sinatra with the Rat Pack. I, just because John tells me to do something doesn't mean I'm going to do it. But if I think something's a good idea and John Willis tells me it's stupid, I may decide he doesn't know what I know. He has this one world and the time he's given me to come into it, and maybe he didn't understand it. But if I explain it to my buddy David, and he also says it's stupid, I have two very astute members, very astute members, right? And if if, if I'm going to give the word to David, it's going to go between engineering and astute. I'd have to try to pick the, 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 the primary one there. Maybe people get two or three in this. I don't know. But I've got energy and astute, right? These are now my members of my board of directors. John and David are now energy and astute saying, Jack, that's stupid. I'm really going to think. And if a few other members of my board, like Nicole, says, well, I see where you're going, but I think they're right. It's just, I start to really question myself. But in the end, I am the head of this board of directors, and they don't get a vote. I have an overriding dictatorial power as the chairman, and I can say, I've heard what everybody has to say. I'm going to do this because you've advised me well, and I'm going to take your advice, or I'm going to go another way. Or I'm going to modify my original idea because of what you said. But this is where it gets really interesting. If that's all that it is, I am but a parasite. I am but a parasite in that relationship. If all I'm doing, and this would be the right word for it, is using them for that function. If I am not the guy that they can call and ask the same type of questions, if I can't be a member of their board of directors, what do they get in return for doing this for me? Now, this is not a straight one-to-one reciprocity, let's keep a ledger thing. But the reality is you won't have this problem. Because if you don't represent that to the other party, you won't have a relationship with people like John, Nicole, or David, or other people that I would say are on my board of directors. And I also think there's kind of a place for what I guess we'd call as advisors to the board. So these are people that are not, you know, on a regular ongoing basis, part of the board meetings. But like we have a mutual respect for this person. And when there's something really unique Outside our core understanding, that person's advice would be fed into the board and evaluated and then given to the chairman for whoever that particular issue is. Or maybe there's multiple chairmen. Maybe both people might be doing something together. This is actually a really interesting dynamic. And the reason I brought it up today, I think it could lead to an entire book or series of books. And it's a natural dynamic. I don't think it needs to be created. I don't think you need to go out and say, I'm going to create my chairman. I'm going to create my board to be the chairman. I think this naturally happens, but I think understanding how and why it happens helps you use it if you're the kind of person who attracts these types of people more efficiently. And if you don't, to understand what you need to change about yourself so that you will. 
And I just thought that was that was the most interesting thing that came out of that two-hour conversation on Tuesday to me. So I wanted to bring that to you guys. Next up, real, real quick, the Lightning Network. There's there's a group of people. I know a lot of you guys aren't into crypto or Bitcoin or any of that stuff, but there's a lot of people, especially in the shitcoin world, that like to say of Lightning because they don't like what it represents. Nobody uses it. Um, so about a month ago, I, I addressed that on an episode of Bitcoin Breakout, and I believe I said at the time, there were around 4,200 Bitcoin providing liquidity inside the Lightning Network. So if you don't understand what that means, anytime a transaction happens on Lightning, there's at least an equal amount of liquidity that's locked up in the network. Now, it's not gone. You didn't give it to somebody else. It's not a third party if you're running your own channel. Like somebody somewhere, though, has to have that liquidity sitting there to move. That's what ensures the movie money moving across from goes in and out the other side. There's an insurance policy of equal value on the inside. So it grew from 4,200 in less than a month to 5,000 bitcoins. I didn't do the math today, but the last time I did the math, it would be a top 300 crypto project if it was a coin. Now, here's the interesting thing about this. One doesn't put liquidity on a lightning network to not do anything. Unless it's doing something, like if you're a merchant and you are setting up your own payments gateway, well, it's allowing you to receive payments. Or if you're a, a routing node runner, you're doing because you're charging a fee for people to move across your nodes. So it's only there if it's incentivized, and it can be used over and over and over again. I have, for instance, uh, a channel open with Wallet of Satoshi, and I have a two and a half million sat channel open with them. And what happens is I push. The, I'm not going to talk about how today, but I push those sats over to their side of the channel, and that way when people are paying me my liquidity moves back to my side. Now, at any time I can close the channel, take it back. It's mine. They don't have it. They don't have access to it, and they can't take it. So let that go. But I have that. Now, what happens, though, is eventually most of that liquidity moves back to my side of the channel. And I'm not going to talk about how, but I push it back over. So that particular amount of Bitcoin that's sitting there is being recycled without ever being used up. So those 5,000 Bitcoin can literally be recycled Daily, hourly, weekly, annual, depends on how active any individual channel is. So you don't have that amount of money, that amount of wealth, and not have anybody using it. So it's just another indicator that the Lightning Network is continuing to grow. And we really, I'm just going to say, those of you that are still holdouts on me, you need to stop ignoring the most monumentous thing to happen to the ability to do business in the history of humankind. Because that's what we're looking at now. And it's hard for some people who have resisted it this long to accept now that it is what it's become. But you're at a point now where you're kind of at a no turning back with it. And the fact that we can use it to do direct transactions with each other or move dollars around the world in a global, in a borderless global fashion with instant settlement it's over. It's over and all of the FUD is meaningless and lightning is but one piece of Bitcoin, but a very important part. And I would say that lightning is the most exciting technology in development right now for, for the average person anyway, for the average person. Anyway, moving on. Um, 
It's not all good news. You know, we talk about World War II. Let's talk about you know another type of devastation, the housing market. So I've said for a long time, again, I said probably about May, early June 2020, market's going to just keep going up like crazy, and it's going to end very, very badly. And uh, it's already happening. People are talking about it. Now people are saying what I said in 2020, it's coming. It's not coming. It's here. New home starts down. Refinances, obviously, with interest rates where they're going way, way down. But not just new mortgages, but new applications for mortgages are way, way down the past couple of weeks. That's always first. Then inventory increases on the market. Then sellers who need to sell begin to lower prices. Then the houses don't sell at the lower prices because there are no buyers or not enough buyers to buy all of the houses. So then it's a race to find the point that people will buy. Then at the same time, you have governments in denial of the decline in the real estate prices. They continue to escalate property taxes and say that your house went up in value while it's going down. People fight. The appraisals, sometimes they win, but they never go below where they were. They might get some off the increase. People start to get pissed off. And what happened in here in 2008, and it did happen right here in Dallas, and we were insulated compared to a lot of places. There were letters to the, air, the editors of the Fort Worth and Dallas newspapers that basically said, I'm walking away from my house, not because I can't afford the mortgage payment, because I'm sick of paying property taxes that are based on double the value of my home. The city of fill in the blank, because it'd be Fort Worth, Dallas, Arlington, Addison, whatever, can choke on it. Goodbye. That starts to happen. Then you throw an economic recession on top of it. People who bought at the edge of what they could afford now by inflation are pushed above that. They walk and all of it combines together at the same time that interest rates are running from about 3% up to 7% which is a perfectly acceptable mortgage rate, except that we've had interest rates in the 2% to 4% range for about eight years, creating a complete upside-down market. And you're about to see a real estate market crash that will make you cry for the good old days of 2009 to come back. And there is no getting out of it now. There is no plan B. There is no alternative. And this is why you're seeing companies who capitalized on this, that bought massive amounts of property up, turned them into rental properties, like BlackRock, selectively divesting themselves of real estate, not keeping all of that real estate that they bought, because they know at the time to get rid of it is now. On top of it, and this could be for either reason, uh, Credit Suisse, for instance, is selling like a 100-plus-year-old luxury hotel for 500 million bucks or something like that. But they say they have plenty of liquidity. They don't need liquidity. Um, so you're looking at the most expensive and the least expensive properties coming down in value. Now, the danger of things like Credit Suisse thing is like it's a European hotel. Maybe they're worried about like extended European conflict. Or maybe they're worried there won't be a lot of people going off on holiday uh, when they can't afford to heat their house. I don't know, but you're starting to see major investment institutions across the world divesting themselves of real property and selectively. Like it's not like they're getting rid of everything because they, first of all, they'll create their own problem. 
But second of all, there are places that no matter what happens, you still want to hold, right? There is still boardwalk and park place on the board, and people want to hold that out. But I'm telling you right now, what you'll see by summer will scare the shit out of you. And the reason people can't see it right now is the old, you know, sci-fi concept of if you went over the event horizon of a black hole where you were being affected by its gravity, where the inevitability of going down into the hole and being stretched out thinner than a single atom had already occurred, you wouldn't know it. Everything would play in slow motion until almost the very end. You'd still think you were headed to, you know, Varnex 7 or wherever the hell you were going, but you'd actually be in the event horizon with no way out. That's where we're at with real estate right now. Because this is, I'll throw it out, I'll always throw it out to the audience when I make a claim like that. Give me an alternative. We have housing that has been selling for well beyond its value. Due to cheap credit, which has dissolved, in a retracting economy with supply chain shortages and wars and rumors of wars. What, what makes that stop before it collapses and does a reset? And if you have an answer, make sure you put it in all caps because I'm not going to be looking and I'm just going to be starring all caps as we go because uh, I, I don't know that there is one. And that brings me to my next thing. I've been saying for longer than I've been podcasting. I started podcasting in 2008 because I've researched this and because I had friends that turned me on to it. And the friends that turned me on to it, you would call wealthy. And you, you wouldn't stutter when you did it if you catch my drift. That we were 30 years behind Japan. And that is the Western advanced societies, not just the United States. It's like... United States, Canada, the United Kingdom, etc. And that all you had to do to know what our future was is look at Japan and go 30 years out. So Japan right now is about 30 years into the lost decade, and it's still lost. The price of everything stays high but the value of everything goes down and the economy goes into a sideways skid and the population growth ceases and you have a staggered demographic that equals economic catastrophe. It doesn't look like a reset. It doesn't look like a depression. It looks like an ongoing recession. It looks like the 1970s in America, but the 80s never come. We're here. You can say we're not, but you can literally look at every indicator. And this is why people were able to say this. So when we were 10 years into Japan and it's supposed to start getting better, they were able to say it's not. It's not going to get any better. This is a 50-year cycle. And then you can just look at the pattern, pattern recognition being pretty important. Look at the United States and economic indicators. Look at the trend in demographics. Look at everything that we were doing and say, okay, you're 30 years off that cycle. I've always remained open to the fact that maybe we weren't. 
that maybe we weren't. But to, now I, I, I can't, I, I can give us a 1% chance of not being there. And you need to start thinking that way. And so what I mean is instead of planning for the end of all, unless these idiots get their way and we have World War III, stagflation forever. Because if it, if you cut the 50 year cycle in half, it's 25 years. And for many of us, that's pretty much forever. We need to think about value creation and our place in the system in a whole different way. You notice Japan's not gone. Not everybody in Japan is miserable. But people that are still holding that stock from 1998, waiting for it to go back to its all-time high, it still hasn't happened. You have to really start thinking about things differently. And I'm not here today to tell you how to think or even what to do, because what I've been telling you to do for the past 15 years, 14 and a half years is what you should be doing. And, and I'm done with people just, I'm going to put you in a timeout, dude. I'm done with people being here for only the purpose of advertising for Alex Jones. I don't have a problem with you mentioning it or something, but like if every five minutes you're dropping, you know, um, info wars and nothing else in the chat, you, you got to get at least a timeout. We'll see what happens after that. All right. So Nord Stream blows up, Eve of World War Three, housing collapse, economically sideways for the foreseeable future, even if sometimes things look good. Demographic implosion outside of immigration. Immigration not being the, the upper cream of the potential inflow. But yet, what do we talk about? Building your board of directors, being the chairman and serving on the others. We need to think, again, differently. Some of the greatest accomplishments of human history have occurred at some of the worst times. This is the fourth turning. I really recommend you guys, if you want to check some out, and it's got some bullshit in it, and it's got some plucky, funny stuff in it. But if you have uh, Fox Streaming, Tucker Carlson has a thing out called The Death of Men or The End of Men. And it, it, it's it's really pretty interesting, and there's a lot of truth to it. And, and we are in that cycle of the strong men made good times and everybody partied. And the good times created weak men. And the weak men are bringing us hard times. And, and the problem we get into is we've been so seduced by Hollywood. And in our space, seduced by prepper porn. We don't understand that you can live right in the middle of a disaster and just still believe it's just going to get better tomorrow. It's not that bad. And it doesn't mean everybody dies and it doesn't mean everybody goes away. But what happens in these times, if strong men don't turn it around quick enough, is the eternal grip of tyranny. And something that needs to be said here when you use words like eternal, if it outlasts you, and outlast your children, it's as eternal as it needs to be to be called eternal by you. So it's time for us to start acting like the strong men that we're supposed to be. With that, I'm going to keep going through here and try to catch up with all the comments everybody made. I don't know how far I am behind. 
the uh, Agora's attorney says to quote Jack, get out, get out, get out. And uh, Sean Kelly says climate change is real and it's going to be a bitch. Because of what you mean by climate change, if you think CO2 is the problem, you don't understand the problem. And you don't understand what a saturation limit is. We're not going to go there. Let's go to some of the, because I didn't, I didn't let our guest pull me. He tried, didn't he? Those of y'all that watched or heard yesterday's interview, he knows who I am. And like four or five times, and he just ended the last thing with climate change. He saw a little glint as I'm like, we're not going to have a discussion about everything else. We go there and we're not going to convince each other. Um, Hanging Laundry says, hey, all, am I nuts? Um, I have a fortified starter colony of buck and three does on the ground with growers and tractors. I'm in zone four. I don't think you're nuts. I do think that you need to think about what's coming. So he's talking about rabbits, if anybody can get that. So he's got uh, a, a buck rabbit, a male rabbit, and three doe rabbits, and he's got them running in tractors on the ground in zone four. I'm not a rabbit expert, dude, but I think you need to think about what your winter's like, and you probably need an overwintering plan. But I think that the plan that you're using can really work for you for a large period of your time. But I also would say that the people that I know most effective with tractoring rabbits, they run the breeders in hutches, and they grow their bunnies out in tractors. So, again, I'm not a rabbit expert. It's one of those things I don't have any more any more bandwidth in my life to add another thing, and my wife won't eat rabbit. So if my wife's not going to eat rabbit, I'm not going to grow rabbit, especially and add another thing. But that, that's just where I'd go with that. Uh, Christopher says, so at what point is the penis spud Biden going to try to send us to Russia? And no, I don't advocate for that. So I, I, there's some attempt at insulting there that I think there's a word or two missing. But basically – He's basically asking, when does Biden start telling Americans that we need to go to Russia and fight for America in Russia for some stupid reason? I don't think that happens here. I don't think that happens here. Now, might they send, like, American troops into Ukraine? I'm going to tell you, honestly, I'd be surprised if they're not already there. Now, just look at how all these other wars in history started. The Vietnam War, or they call it a conflict that was never declared. A war is a war when you're in it. And, you know, they said we're sending advisors or whatever. But by the time they told you they were sending advisors, they had already been sending advisors. And then, well, we're going to send, you know, like special operations troops to train uh, the, the South Vietnamese. They, they had already been doing that. And, and they had already been in the field with them, actively engaged in conflict. Uh, and then later they, and then like, oh yeah, we're there, but we need to really be there. Like that's how this all, like history is a good indicator of the future. So I would say the very fact that the Ukrainians have done as well as they've done is likely that because there's been some level of actual intervention already, it's incredibly dangerous. But, <laughs> This country's probably never been in a less ready mode to fight an on-the-ground war in our history for the time and the situation factored in. Obviously, we're better equipped today than we were equipped, let's say, during World War One, but we were better equipped for the time at World War One than we are today. More than half of 
people of the age of enlistment are disqualified for enlistment before they're even looked at. And I actually find this encouraging, but it is a sign of a, a falling society. Recently, people that were of enlistment age were asked if not if they'd consider, but do they trust the military? And the number that said they did was somewhere in the low 30 percentile. And I think if you ask if they trust government, that number would go even lower. And so it starts to bring up the thing. What if there was a war and nobody showed up to fight it? And I think that eventually is how we rest control because people don't go to war. People fight wars. Governments go to war. States go to war. And they send the most noble among us off to die in them. And that's not lionizing war or making heroes out of people that aren't heroes. It's the truth that the person who will voluntarily lay down his life for the life of his brother or sister that does so in a belief that what they're doing is for the greater good of their country, even when they're wrong is something that only people who have true nobleness in them to find the courage to do the thing they fear the most, which is risk their own lives. That's who they are. Now, when you start going to conscripts and, and draftees, et cetera, some of that dynamic changes. But in the end, there's ways around a draft, and there's ways that even if you're drafted to stay out of conflict, even a lot of those draftees, they found that in themselves at some point. Well, I didn't want to, but since I've been told that I'm going to, I will. And so if you want to purge your nation of the most noble, get involved in a war, sell that that demographic on it, and send them as cannon fodder, and you'll accelerate your descent into weak men. If you were to fight a war, you better know why. The people fighting the war better know why. The victory better be clear as to what it is and what it looks like. And it must be pursued to that end as swiftly and efficiently as possible, or no one should dare ask anybody else to bleed for it. And I'm already against the next war, so that's not an advocation for war. Saying if it's necessary, that's how it has to be. Um, Builder of Castle said, let's say you made a commune, which may be very important for survival in the future. Community is a better word. When they are run as a collective, uh, collectivist group, it fails maybe capitalist commune. See, this is the problem. Absolutism in a place where there's no need of it. So if we're fishing and I'm trolling, it doesn't preclude me from from bouncing a bait or stopping the boat and going to casting and retrieving. Right? And if I'm if I have a boat that's under that I'm, I have a gas motor on, it doesn't preclude me from having an electric motor. We can, we all have aspects of our lives where we have socialist concepts in motion in that people communally share a resource. It, it, until you take that out of that world into a place where it is, it is imposed upon others without their consent. It's not a system of control. It's still a collectivist action, and you could still use the adjective, adjective socialism for it, right? And there's also agreements that when we enter them voluntarily, we agree that we won't renege on the contract even if it becomes uncomfortable. The problem becomes when we say, hey, you over there, you have to be part of this. So we have to have private property, but that private property can be collectively owned under collective rules. 
And the reason I even do this and even go down this realm is because I don't think people have realized how controlled by language they are. If a word triggers you, you have to determine whether it's because it really should. Like, I don't see a good use of the word rape unless it's being used to convict and execute somebody that committed it. There's, there's no good use of the word rape as far as a good outcome, right? Unless it's like burying a rapist before you put him to death and then relying on the pressure of the earth to do the work. Or pedophile. And the, pe- the only good use of the word pedophile is we put the pedophile into the wood chipper. But if we take a word like socialism because of how poorly it's performed as a system of governance, and we deny collective social activity at a voluntary level because we're triggered by the word, we're letting the word control how we view the world. And it's the same dynamic that's used when government takes a word like anarchist or survivalist or prepper and maligns it to the point where it doesn't, you know, where you say anybody that wants to make America great again is a radical Trump supporter. When that person might think, Making America great again would be a good thing. And might might want nothing to do with, with Donald Trump. But now they're ultra MAGA and you've, you've, you've poisoned the word. And that is, that is one of the main ways that human beings are controlled is by poisoning words. And until you realize that there are not two sides here within the, the apparatus of control, there is but one. And this is where you have, like, I had somebody crying and whining. I told him to shut his face slid on Instagram yesterday. Because I posted something that he found political. I said, you don't have any business doing it. You're supposed to be a survivalist. Well, you ain't listened to me or followed my Instagram or my show for 15 years then because you're full of shit. You used to post nothing but cool survival shit. That never happened. That ne- Even all my homesteading shit, most of my shit's not survivalist. Like This is a guy that followed somebody for a name and had no idea what he was getting into. But basically it was criticizing... I don't even remember now because it wasn't that important to me, but was criticizing Biden or Harris or something like that. And, uh, you know, basically, oh, it was uh, Pelosi being a total racist, saying that we needed to keep the uh, illegal immigrants in Florida so they could pick fruit, right? So you point out that the liberal left wealthy class is the most racist demographic in America, and that's a political statement. Now, that's an observation. And by the way, in the the classification of white, wealthy leftists, I'd put a whole lot of Republican politicians and bureaucrats. They'd go right in there. They have a predisposition to move more to the you know the Democrat Party, but there's plenty of them on both sides. But to criticize one party is not the defense of another, but it is by the control of language and the manipulation of thought that you convince people that it is, and it makes a discussion impossible. That's why I even bother with things like this. Sitting here wishing I had popcorn. <laughs> hey, man, your, your microwave or stovetop is right down the hallway. Um, same person. U.S. blowing it up proves we don't care about the environment. I would agree with that, too. Same person, D. Frico, one said that. Yeah, and again, I'm not going to say the United States did it. I'm going to say the preponderance of evidence makes it appear as though the party most likely responsible for it would be the United States of America. And an independent 30 party investigation by an impartial source 
would most likely at the end of it result in the conviction of the United States government. That's what I'll say. But in absolute, I, know, I don't ever say, I know we did something if I lack enough conclusive evidence to declare that. Because in spite of the fact that I'm just a podcaster and an entertainer and a life coach in a way and a homestead advisor and a permaculturist, I also do view myself as a journalist. And until I can corroborate two individual sources that lead me to the same conclusion of an absolute confirmation of a thing, I don't claim to know a thing. So in other words, I have a lot more journalist integrity than anybody on your television set. Unless you put me on your television set using like some form of like airplay or something like that. Um, moving on, the Agorist attorney says vendors at Self Reliance Festival were accepting lightning. It was great. They were. No one uses lightning. You just go to a little 500 person festival. People are selling honey and bone sauce and whole house uh, electronic production protection systems against surges in the like a surge protector for your whole house. All kinds of shit selling coffee, lightning, and it was working. And I'm watching people do it, and I'm thinking, yep, yeah, this is this is the way. Uh, Dave Spangler says, please retell your opinion of XRP. That would be Monero for the people that don't know. I think that privacy currencies like Monero and Pirate Chain remain one of the few you know, altcoins, alternative currencies, et cetera, that have an actual use case in the real world in that they can if you do everything else right, and most people that use them don't. Like, well, if you're not using them on tour, if you do not have good security on your laptop or your computer or your note or whatever you're doing for it, um, that I can still see what you're doing on your side, right? So if you use the proper methods of privacy protection, they do enable the transaction to be inherently private. And that's something that Bitcoin still lacks, though Bitcoin transactions are becoming, when done properly, more and more private across time. However, as an investment, I think it's probably not the best place to put your money. There is an entire group of like the Monero army that thinks that, you know, the Ethereum people talk about uh, the flipping. Someday Ethereum will be the number one crypto in the world. Ain't happening There's an even more misguided group of folks that think that's going to happen to Monero and you should stack as much Monero as you can because it will be uh, the, the global currency of the world. The currency that is the currency that you need to have yourself leveraged into one way or another is Bitcoin because it's so good that even the people that hate it will use it. And it's an asymmetric tool at that point that – You want everybody you love and everybody you hate to adopt and use Bitcoin. And unlike them adopting and using a conventional weapon, if you had a weapon that was superior to your enemies, if they pick it up and start using it, you lose. Bitcoin is truly the first, not asymmetric form of warfare. That's an old concept. That goes back to art of war. You know, this is the first time I maybe it was really documented in a lasting way, but an asymmetric weapon of war. And you have to understand that war doesn't always mean people shooting each other. Two sides in conflict with each other for the control of territory or resources is war. And we almost need to not redefine war, but expand the definition of war or be specific to the type of war we're involved in. Because then maybe we wouldn't think that we're such benevolent people when we're actually committing acts of war against people. 
sanctions are an act of war against the people of the nation you enact sanctions against. And you'd see it real fast if somebody had enough clout to initiate sanctions against us. Remember that little baby formula shortage we had? I want you to go back and imagine that it lasted longer and was worse than it was. And now I want you to imagine it was because a nation like, let's say, China had enough economic clout that they had extended sanctions to the United States. And that shortage in baby formula existed because China didn't like something that we were doing, went to the United Nations, sold other nations on it, and led the act of sanctioning us. And your child went without food because another nation enacted a sanction against you. And tell me, you rah-rah assholes are always like, no, it's not, that it wouldn't be. Oh, you'd be losing your shit and wanting to bomb them into oblivion and start World War Three over. Now imagine it affects your ability not just to feed your baby, but your other children, yourself, and to get medicine. And that's what sanctions do. That's what sanctions do. So when we say war, maybe we need to start describing like economic warfare, kinetic warfare, right? Like maybe we need to describe it. So we are in an economic war with the elites, The elites seek to control all the world's resources. The elites seek to license every action so that it can be controlled. But if you have something that's so good, that works so well, the temptation eventually becomes, I need to use it too. And for the first time you have something, that if they use it too, you benefit. So... You know, if you want to use XRP for individual transactions, if you want to use it with atomic swaps to make Bitcoin more private, fine. You want to hold some? Go ahead. But if you want to know where, where the vast majority of my wealth that's in, you know, the crypto space is, at this point, it, it, it it's more than 90% Bitcoin. The only thing I have, because I try to be forward about this, that I have significant holdings of are Pirate Chain, because I bought it when it was eight cents. And if I'm going to get out of it, you know, I have no risk and tremendous upside in Ethereum, which I bought when it was 93 or 98 cents or something like that. I didn't even know what it was. That's back when I was a shit coiner and I was, I was a, a baby shit coiner, right? I was a Bitcoiner that started hearing about these other things and maybe there's a case for them and Coinbase came out hey, we have this new thing called Ethereum. You want to buy some? And I'm like, I'll buy a hundred bucks worth or whatever, you know, whatever it was. I don't know. And so I have a pretty good stack of that. And it, you know, I think that. The marketing clowns over at Ethereum are going to do a pretty good job of selling the merge, which is a freaking disaster, by the way. But it doesn't matter. The perception becomes reality. And I think there'll be a much better exit point for me and when I will have to take the hit and pay the United States government their capital gains because you buy it in the KYC and you hold it in a single number and they will find you eventually. So there's that. Uh, Jack, response, market strong from relocation influx in PHL is tenfold what it was in the last few years. Assume New York City. Okay, so PHL is Philadelphia there. So what he's saying is the real estate market in Philadelphia is ten times stronger today uh, than it was in the last few years, and he assumes it's an exodus of people from New York and New Jersey. Probably, and the one problem that states like Pennsylvania have is that while they will benefit from a population increase from people fleeing states like New Jersey uh, and New York is Pennsylvania is only a tiny ass little bit better. 
That's why you have a clown from New Jersey claiming to be a Pennsylvania like Dr. Oz, who is a Hollywood liberal running for the Republican seat in the Senate in Pennsylvania, and a dude with a neck bigger than my head who literally did live in his parents' basement into his 40s, literally did, and running as a Democrat. And people think that that insult that he lived in his mom's basement, you know, the thing about Pennsylvania, there's plenty of voters there. They're like, I still do. What's the problem? I'm not kidding. So, like, Pennsylvania is screwed. Um, the choices they've left themselves with show you how screwed that they are. And there's a bunch more comments came in while I was working through that. And I can't answer. I'll just say one here. Uh, Uncle Benny says, how can I get pirate chain? Let me say this. I've, this is the thing. Even when I was a full-on shit corner, I always said this. In, it, with, until you are to the left of zero with Bitcoin, you shouldn't even look at any of these other damn cryptocurrencies at all, even if you're willing to gamble, because you haven't laid up enough of a nest egg long term. Assuming you've done that and you want to get Pirate Chain, the easiest exchange to buy it on is the most straightforward is called CoinEx. And if you go to the Bitcoin breakout forward slash tools, you'll see the places I recommended by Bitcoin and CoinEx is on there. I primarily use CoinEx today because it is a shit coin exchange extraordinaire and it's no KYC. So when someone's like, Jack, I want to buy a member support brigade from you. And I'm like, all right, sure. No problem. I want to pay in crypto. All right. No problem. And they're like, I want to play, pay in diddly doo dah coin. Hold on a second and go to CoinX. Oh shit, they take diddly doo dock one. Here's an address and I immediately convert it to Bitcoin and withdraw it. And because it's no, no KYC user for that. But they're one of the few, like I would call legitimate exchanges that really adopted Pirate Chain. And I think this is what really has held Pirate Chain back from a pricing standpoint is they're not on a Binance, right? Or a Bitrix. Like they're not on a major exchange. And because they're private, and this is one of the things about privacy coins, Monero managed to hit it just right, and he get into some exchanges in like before that that door, and they did get kicked off a few, but they're on, and that's what held their value. Where Pirate Chain was never able to to get in the door with any of the exchanges, and some is the whole concept of well, we don't want to touch you. The other side is since it's a hundred percent private, always. It's and it's a hundred percent encrypted always. Integrating into exchanges is actually pretty hard. If I was going to buy more, and I'm not, but I am going to hold what I have, uh, I, I would go to CoinEx to do it. With that, guys, I've wrapped things up. I want to remind you, if you like the show and work that I do, one of the ways you can help support us is do your online shopping starting at where. You can do it starting at tspaz.com, folks. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. You go to tspaz.com, and no matter what you buy, you will help support the show and the work that we do. Item of the day today is the Hydrofarm submersible pump, particular the 550-gallon per hour one, which is what I use in all my smaller systems or in my larger systems with smaller additions to them, uh, is on sale today for 33% off in the middle of a supply chain shortage. They were sold out just a couple of months ago because I was like, I had to use one of my spares and I needed a spare. And I went to buy them and like pricing alert came back to them. I'm like, oh damn, I need to get another one on the shelf. So I picked one up before I put it out. If you're going to do a hydro, aquaponics, et cetera, project, you're going to be in kind of the scale that this pump works for. 
This is my favorite one. They also make an 1,100-gallon one. There's no slouch if you want to step up. What I love about the 550, though, if you take a male-female um, one-half-inch uh, slip-in thread, so you have a, a male thread and female slip for half-inch PVC, you see the little, uh, little burrs that screw into the top of this pump, it will screw straight into it so you can go straight PVC. And this is why I standardize on pumps. I have a Danner pump that's in the write-up. There's a 2,000 to 3,000 gallon per hour between which they're both the same form factor. And I have this pump, and I've standardized them. And that means that if I have a pump performing poorly or die, I can grab one off the shelf, disconnect it, pop this one, plug it in, and in less than a minute I can replace any pump. It takes me longer to walk from the shop to the, the system than it does to install it. And there's times where, honestly, the pump's not bad. It needs to be cleaned out. It's gotten really gunked up. I don't have time. I'll take one of the pumps off the shelf, swap it out, and let the gummed up one dry out, hose it out, put it back, put the newer one back on the shelf. I do that all the time. Um, so anyway, uh, that's on sale today. If you're looking to build out a system, get it while you can before they're gone again. But no matter what you're going to buy, if you're going to shop online, consider starting your shopping at tspaz.com. Last thing, if you're going to buy something from Amazon, and most of you do, and you're not using the fold card, you could be getting 5% or more back on your purchases in tax-free Bitcoin with the fold card. So if you're not using fold, you hate money and you hate money in the form of Bitcoin. The Bitcoin breakout.com forward slash fold will tell you all about it. With that, I'll be back tomorrow with an expert council QA show how to finish up the week. You pull yourself up, they keep bringing you down. Are they gonna bail you out or just run you around? said you should have a house the American way a dollar down a dollar 